This is an ABC podcast. The delightful and uplifting music of composer Nigel Westlake from the recent Australian movie Ali's Wedding. Hello, Anthony Fennell here and welcome to Future Tense. The world of classical music is changing. Consumption habits have shifted markedly in recent years and some are now predicting the demise of orchestral events, while others see opportunity in social media and a new sense of engagement between the audience and musicians. To discuss matters classical, I'm joined by my ABC colleagues Eddie Ayres and Martin Buzzacott. Eddie is a writer, musician and the host of Hub on Art on ABC Radio National. And Martin is, of course, the voice of Mornings on ABC Classic FM. He's also a music and theatre critic for The Australian and welcome to you both. Hi, Anthony. Yeah, hi. Thanks for having us. I want to come to the future of live orchestral events shortly, but Martin, as a music genre, how healthy is classical music? What's its future? From the perspective of just what's happening as opposed to what we want to happen, there's a huge amount going on in classical music. Probably never been healthier, really, in terms of if you want to access classical music now, you've got more opportunities than there have ever been probably in history. Because not only is the concert world still flourishing, not only are recordings still being made, but of course there are so many different ways now to access the music through digital means, and uh, particularly through streaming. If you want to hear any kind of work of classical music now, it comes with the touch of a button. If you want to hear the Berlin Philharmonic or see the Berlin Philharmonic playing in a concert, you can actually do that live all through the new technology. So, and of course, YouTube and those other media, they're remarkable. Well, YouTube, it's not uncommon, is it, to go on and find a piece that you <laughs> like and then look down and find that it's had, you know, a million or 1.7 million listeners, which is incredible. Really. Or in the case of the Beethoven Moonlight Sonata, there's just one site alone that's had 117 million as of this morning, because I checked, and many more that have had tens of millions. It's absolutely incredible and these figures are comparable with a lot of the pop videos. We're used to classical music providing the background atmospherics for film and television but it's now also a huge part of the online gaming experience isn't it? Absolutely and in fact in a recent survey done in Britain they did the usual classic 500, classic 200 or whatever. The top 100 there were nine video game music scores in the top 100. Wow, that's amazing. Absolutely incredible. And people are listening to classical music and now being introduced to classical music through gaming. I don't want to necessarily give a plug to ABC Classic FM here, but it has its own program, I understand now, that's dedicated to game music. Every Friday afternoon at three o'clock, we've got the game the game show, it's called, and Mina Shamali hosts it, and it's going off. And one day we didn't actually get it to air, and oh, the outrage, because people were, you know, they love this show. Because it's, it's new music, but it's music that also speaks to our lives right now. 
Indiaz, uh, tell us about the relationship that classical music has today with other genres of music. Well, I would say that over the last um, several years, in fact, that classical music has been spreading out into other types of music. You know, if you think about all those really massive rock bands of the 1970s and 80s, where they would quite often release an orchestral album. <laughs> Famously Queen, of course, with that's, Bohemian Rhapsody. Well, that's right. I mean, if you think about the structure of Bohemian Rhapsody, I mean, it's a structure literally of a rhapsody with an introduction and then a development, all that sort of stuff. Bohemian Rhapsody is a great example. I think uh, ACDC have had albums. Martin, you might know. Deep Purple, yeah. Moody Blues were the go. first to do it all. You quite often hear cellos now in pop music. You'll often hear violins. They very regularly have brass sections, perhaps woodwind a little bit less so. But I think getting used to that sort of sound, that timbre, is going a long way, as Martin was saying, about getting the ear used to hearing classical orchestral sounds to then bring the audience over into classical music. Uh, there are also pop musicians now who are writing classical pieces. And I don't mean experimentally, like, you know, let's get Paul McCartney in to write a piece for, you know, one of the London orchestras. But people like, you know, the guitar player from The National, Bryce Desner, you know, and, pe and people like that, they actually play in rock bands. But they're formally trained classical musicians and they're writing now for classical music. And the ACO have played quite a bit of Bryce Desmond's music. Eddie, there's been an enormous shift over the past decade, as we mentioned just earlier, in terms of the way people access and consume media. How has that affected classical music itself, though, do you think? Yeah, I, I think absolutely enormously. I mean, I, I think that there are a lot of artists around nowadays who are really using social media in an incredibly powerful way. One musician who really comes to mind is Ray Chen. Mm. I think that he's brilliant with using social media to up his profile and to really strongly connect with the audience and audience throughout all levels, you know, and all ages. He's got so many young people now really connecting with him. He does Facebook Live feeds, he does Instagram, you know, all that sort of stuff. So it's not just PR, he's not just doing it for marketing purposes? No, no, he's not. He's doing it for educational purposes, just simply for entertainment. You know, he'll talk about his practice routine on his Facebook Live. I mean, he famously mm. said that he never practices scales on Facebook. But live. more and more classical musicians, just like people in, in electronic dance music and other genres, are releasing their material yeah. via social media. They're actually bypassing the record labels. So what does that mean for those record labels? <laughs> I mean, that's not good news for them then, is it? I, I'm not sure if this is true or not, but anecdotally I was told that number 20 on the British classical, classical CD charts recently sold three units. <gasps> um, I do know that, I mean, and as everyone knows, I mean, the sales of classical CDs have dropped dramatically. But the sales, I guess, of all CDs have, haven't they? I mean, this is, exactly. I, su I suppose we shouldn't be surprised. It's part of a, a mm. broader trend within media. That's exactly it. And as I say, all you need to do is go on to Deezer or, or Spotify or Apple Music or any of these new streaming services. You've got all that music there. And as long as you've got a, you know, a decent so a da annual download or a monthly download, you can just listen to them for free. Classical music, of course, has often been criticised as elitist, as, as stuffy and, and, and overly formal. And one person who recently declared he'd be happy to see the death of classical music in its traditional form is Charlie Albright, who you might be surprised to hear is actually a young American pianist, a former child prodigy. I caught up with him recently between touring events in the US, and here he is playing the Turkish March by Mozart. Thank you. 
way classical music is stereotypically performed today really isn't how it was performed through much of history, especially when it was actually written and performed for the first time. For example, people like Mozart and Liszt, and they were very used to improvising on the spot. And, you know, Mozart notoriously would perform in kind of less formal settings. And if he did something that people liked, they would applaud in the middle of his piece and he'd play that part again. And it was much less formal and the rules were much less stringent. And it kind of became in the, you know, kind of in the 19th, 20th centuries that we we really kind of developed a lot of these stringent ways that it should be done. For example, you know, you're not allowed to clap in between movements, you know, God forbid you do that, or let alone within a movement. If you cough, you know, somebody will shoot you a death glare. Or, you know, if improvisation is also a very much, very much of a lost art nowadays, where it was very common and expected of all musicians back in the day. Mozart, Beethoven, many of those composers actually left big gaping holes in their pieces called cadenzas, where it was expected that people would improvise after the orchestra stops accompanying them. Of course, that kind of went by the wayside and composers started writing in suggested cadenzas sometimes for people who might not otherwise be, you know, very great at improvising on their own. And eventually it became that, you know, those were the only ones that are almost ever played anymore. Whereas when they were composed, that really wasn't the case. I, I've had, I had the privilege of touring much of the world, but especially part of the, the middle of the United States, where there isn't as much classical music as in, say, New York or, you know, some of the larger cities. And sometimes I'd, get, I'd be on these tours and sometimes perform in these towns that have, you know, a thousand people in it is all. And you'd have 800 people, 700 or 800 people come to these concerts and they would be absolutely thrilled when you performed and got rid of a lot of these, these rules. Um, I think that, you know, classical music is something that everyone can love. But I think the rules can kind of be a hindrance to it. Getting rid of a lot of these rules will help encourage, it'll make the experience more welcoming, I suppose. And that is a huge part of, of communicating. And that's the big part of music is to really communicate between artist and musician and audience. And as a pianist and as somebody who, who tours quite regularly, what do you do personally to try and revitalize, I guess, classical music with your audience? I try to do a few things, and it's not just for the audiences, but it's for me myself, actually, because it seems to relax me and it makes the experience more enjoyable on, on my end as the performer. I love to speak. So between each piece, when I'm giving a recital, a solo recital, for example, I'll speak to the audience for three or four minutes and not in a lecture format, not a this happened and he composed this then and this, that, you know, it, not that. That's not what people are really interested in. People really want to know what makes it human because Ultimately, music is is communication, and it's a reflection of humanity. So, you know, I talk about why I like the piece, or what I find difficult, or why this is really neat, or how I first stumbled upon this piece of music, and then I'll play something. I also love incorporating uh, improvisations into concerts. It's something that used to be done by many pianists and is rarely done anymore. And I'll often take notes from the audience, three or four random notes, and then scope together a ten-minute or longer piece of music. Occasionally, I'll do an entirely improvised concert. That's exciting because it's the creation of music on the spot. It's fresh and it's unedited. It's I like to think of improvisation as kind of the other side of the coin of, of music. One side is playing what is um, what has been composed and putting your own interpretation to it. And the other is coming up with something that's 
raw and unedited. And that really speaks from, from the heart, hopefully. I also tell people they can clap whenever they want, and sometimes they'll take me up on it. And it's, it's great. A live concert experience, I think, should be that. It should be live. And it's, it's not just a person or people playing something and then a group of people listening. I think a concert should be an interaction. It's, it's communicating both ways and hopefully everyone having a wonderful time during it. And the response from the audience, are they divided on that? Are there some people who, who love that approach and some people who just find it difficult? From my personal experience, it's 999 to 1. Occasionally you will find someone who prefers, you know, that people sit absolutely silent. They'll, you know, they don't like it when in-between movements are interrupted by applause. And for every one person of those, there's 999 or 1,000 people who are absolutely thrilled with it. Because what it does is I think it, it really breaks down the invisible glass wall between the stage and the audience. It's a reflection of, of people and it's a, it's a shared experience. It's not so much playing music as sharing music together. That's one of the joys and bits of magic that live performance can bring. You know, if you want to hear a perfectly crafted piece of music, you can listen to a studio recording and that it'll be perfectly silent. There will be no other sounds. But I really don't think that's the point of live performance. I, I think it's a shared experience that is in the moment. American pianist Charlie Albright. And this is Future Tense. I'm Anthony Fennell. Anna Goldsworthy is also an accomplished pianist and writer, and she joins us now from Adelaide. And your thoughts on uh, Charlie Albright and what he had to say there? Well, I like what Charlie's got to say there, and I think he's absolutely right. Music is about communicating, and I think it's fabulous when you come across a performer who's prepared to reach out and, and be an advocate for the art form and, you know, not just occupy this sort of distant province that's called the stage and, and do their thing behind this invisible glass wall. I, I think it's incumbent upon all of us to reach out and make that contact with, with our audiences. And, I mean, I think it is anyway in the nature of the art, but I also feel, I mean, listening to Martin and Eddie speaking before, you know, at risk of seeming like a doomsayer, I don't exactly sh share all of their optimism and, and cheer about the current state of classical music. I think there are really great things going on with digitisation and the ready distribution of recordings and all of these things can be fabulous, but I also think we shouldn't bury our heads in the sand and there is a type of crisis afoot. And that crisis, I, I see it at the grassroots level when I tour around Australia with my trio which we've been doing now for 20 years. And I see the audience ageing before my very eyes. And I see we're playing for exactly the same people that we were playing for 20 years ago. The audience is not being replenished. And why is that? And what can we do about that? Now, you, a couple of years ago, wrote a very honest and influential article for The Monthly along those themes called Has Classical Music Become Irrelevant? One of the, the things that you talked about there was modern attention spans. Uh, mm. and, and you, in part, blamed that for, as you see, a, a drop in audience numbers. Just explain that to us. What did you mean by that? First of all, we've got a bit of a problem in this discussion, I think, in that we, no one's actually advanced a definition of what classical music is. Is classical music, are we talking about notated music or are we talking about music that uses particular acoustic instruments? What, what, what are we saying that classical music is? I mean, I, I do think improvisation has traditionally been a very, very large part of classical music and I um, applaud any revivals of improvisation. But I also think one of the beauties of whatever we want to call it, art music, 
is when it became a written tradition, it was possible for these texts, these sort of musical texts of great complexity to arise that unfold over huge periods of time that tell a story in the same way that the invention of the, the written world allowed, you know, stories to be written down that could actually extend longer than a human memory. This allowed for these texts of fabulous complexity to emerge. Now, if that tradition lives on in often the you know brilliant and well-crafted essentially ostinatos of video games, well, I guess great that classical music, if we want to call it that, is occupying some kind of cultural space. But to me, if that's all we've got and we're losing this tradition of these sort of extraordinary symphonies or sonatas that unfold in time, that tell a story, to me that's a very sad state of affairs. So do you draw a distinction between the sort of classical music that people like to listen to and classical music then that has what you would see as cultural importance? Are there two? Are we talking about two separate things in your eyes? No, I don't think they need to be mutually exclusive. I just think we need to ask ourselves, what is this classical music that we're talking about in this conversation, first of all? Does it deserve to be defended? Is it sufficient consolation to say that people are listening to acoustic instruments and you can hear a cello sometimes on a video? game soundtrack? Or is there something else of deep and intrinsic value that has to do with this music that demands to be attended to? It demands not just to be a background, you know, there's this poem by Les Murray that I quoted in that essay in which he said, uh, says, the world rebounds with music and with Prozac. And there is this sense today of noise, the musical noise being ubiquitous. It follows us everywhere. It follows us into department stores. But actually that feeling of sitting down and playing an instrument, you know, that, that the purchase that you have when you actually play an instrument and you're fully immersed in a musical experience, which you then have vicariously, I guess, in, in a concert experience, to me that's something worth preserving and it's got to do with mindfulness and it's got to do with attention. Eddie Ayres, your thoughts? I mean, you're also a musician as well as a broadcaster. Well, I haven't been a performing musician for a long time, but I am a teacher of uh, string instruments. And Anna, yes, I, I certainly agree with that thing of attention span. I think that that is an issue. And I've observed that with my own students that, you know, in their lessons that attention spans can sort of come and go. And I also think it's, a, you know, it's, it's obviously is something that we do need to make some sort of frame around what is classical music but maybe actually in the end that's kind of where classical music is going that it is getting rid of those bounds that that it did used to have absolutely eddie and i've got no objection to that i mean in fact right at the moment i'm working on a collaboration with my trio and with paul kelly and we're designing this kind of you know cross musical examination of bird poetry actually and i love the idea of the kind of cross fertilization that can occur when genres collide so it's not that i want classical music to remain in its sort of sacred glass box in a museum but I guess, I mean, the first thing is, what, what is it? What, what is this thing that we're calling classical music? Martin Buzzacott, it is possible now to have music that eliminates basically the musician and the instruments, digitally produced music. We've seen a Perfectly lot of that possible. in pop music. We are now starting to see that in the classical music sector as well, aren't we? I mean, is that classical music if a musician actually isn't physically involved? Unlike Anna, I have a problem defining classical music, but my problem with defining classical music is I don't see why we need to. I mean, if I'm talking about classical music, you know, like I talk about anything, you do make certain assumptions and so on. For me, classical music is something like, you know, the six state symphony orchestras, the ACO and Music Aviva, that kind of touring network and so on, where people do play acoustic instruments. But having said all of that, yes, there is all this other potential now 
to actually take all those works written for those ensembles and actually remix them digitally mm. and do all kinds of things with them, which, of course, is horrifying from a particular perspective where you set classical music aside as something, you know, definable in a box... But actually, it's happening in all other forms of music. I mean, I've mentioned electronic dance music. Yeah, I mean, I mean it's you know, happening in it, arts as well. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, just look at the credits of any three-minute song, you know. Mm. I mean, there are five different people featuring and you know, remixing and collaborating and, and yes. all the rest. And I can see classical music going that way. I actually don't share the doom and gloom view, though. Yes, there are older people at concerts, but there always have been. And I think there are a couple of reasons for that. You know, Martin, that's sort of what we all say to each other to reassure ourselves that it's okay, that it's always been an older person's game. But I had a look at the census data of classical music attendance in the United States in the 1930s, and the average age was actually in people in their 30s. You go to China now, and any time you play a concert in China, you are inundated by children and mm. by young people. And it's actually, I mean, it can often be a noisy experience, but it's fabulous to walk out on stage and, and see a future generation of music appreciators there. We don't have that in this country. And the large institutions, many of them are still standing. I know ACO is thriving. I think the Brandenburg Orchestra is thriving. But... When you go out to the community, as my trio does, and we tour around, you know, a lot of regional music clubs, a lot of them are folding. Is that because also that from the audience perspective, there is simply much more choice out mm. there? We, you know, we're competing yep. against our phones, we're competing yes. against television and uh, Netflix and all of that. I mean, is what you're talking, Anna, about really what's happening to all arts industries as the kind of that choice opens up for audiences? Yeah, I mean, quite possibly, except that I think it's a, in some ways music is a special case because I think the other thing that has contributed to that is there's a whole generation of parents who didn't have exposure to a musical education, which I think is actually a tragedy. I mean, there's there's so much research that suggests that the best thing you can do for a kid is put an instrument in their hand or give them singing lessons, and it opens up realms of experience and possibility for them that far transcends the musical too. But it's not something that has been valued in this country consistently over the generations. And as a consequence, there's a, there's a missing generation. There's a missing generation who don't come oh. to concerts and I, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm a, I'm a performer. Obviously, I like people to go to concerts, sure. but I don't believe that the classical concert experience is the only thing that counts or the only barometer of artistic health. I think actually what counts is amateur music making, is people sitting at home and playing their instruments together. And when that aspect of the ecosystem is healthy, then you get the spillover of people coming and, um, you know, wanting to experience this thing. Eddie, you're a teacher as well. Your experience with young people, I mean, are they as responsive to classical music as previous generations? Oh, I would say absolutely so. And I would say that numbers are extremely healthy. A decade or so ago, there was a lot of concern about how many children were being taught yeah. music in schools and a decline in that. Has that shifted at all from your perspective? Well, look, here in Queensland, we're very lucky that in-school music programme is funded by the state government. So I think Queensland's You are exception. very lucky. Yes. Queensland is fantastic. Yeah. Yes, Queensland is fantastic. So, you know, the numbers here are healthy. But I know I was wondering, you know, when you place yourself in um, various areas, you know, out in the regions, how much of that lack of audience do you think is also to do with the economy? Well, yeah, I mean, maybe it, maybe it is that too. Um, but I think we, we do perceive a similar phenomenon in, in some of our metropolitan audiences, which is just that there's no two ways about it. They are ageing. And mm. I mean, I, when I was directing the Port Ferry Spring Music Festival, the average age of our audience members was slightly over 70. And now, now, Martin, those... you're shaking your head. Why? Uh, because I'm actually one of the people who Anna's talking about, me who makes my <laughs> career 
in classical music, who's loved classical music all my life, there was a period of five or ten years where I didn't go to a single classical concert. And the reason I didn't is because I had a young family, I had yeah. huge financial responsibilities, yeah. I had all kinds of other pressures going on in my life, and the last thing I had the capacity all the time to do was to fork out $300, which is basically what you would pay with parking and, you know, babysitting and all the rest, to actually go to a classical concert. I think in regional areas, my God, with droughts and, you know, God knows mm. what else is going on, so many things going on in people's lives, but... I'm now coming back to going to concerts, not just because I'm a critic and it's my job, but I'm now coming back because I'm getting to a time in my life where I've been to enough rock concerts, I've been to enough gruff gigs, and I actually like getting dressed up and being told to sit down and shut up and listen very carefully to the music. You like some of the formality. I, it, like, it is very... I like the format. It's always regarded as such a Cut. negative. I actually like it. Coming back to the economics, though, it is very expensive, isn't it, Anna, to go yeah, to likewise, a concert? Sure, but it's also really expensive to go to a rock concert. It's hugely, it's much more expensive to go and see Madonna when she comes to Australia. So it's also just about what kind of music you're choosing to, to spend your recreational dollar on. But Martin, in your case, I would, I would make the point that, you know, fabulous that you've come back into the fold, but you've come back into it and you had that background and you had that introduction to it. Now, what troubles me, about, there is this notion that classical music is elitist and actually it's quite a well-founded notion because often it's the kids of privileged backgrounds who get proper music education in schools mm. and they're the ones who are most likely to have the courage to step into a concert hall. And who can and, and so the privilege can afford it. I just wonder when we're talking about classical music too and reaching out to audiences, there is, with classical music, isn't there, there is a very heavy focus on the past, long dead composers. We don't, and I've heard this from people saying, you know, we, we don't see many contemporary composers. We're not hearing their kind of music. Is that, Eddie Ayres, is that a, a valid criticism or critique? Well, yes, I think so. And I think there's some incredibly exciting contemporary composers who, who we simply don't hear enough of. I think the ACO is very successful at bringing contemporary composers. This is the Australian Chamber Orchestra. That's right. I mean, they're one of the most successful orchestras in the world actually, and they're here in Australia. And they're brilliant at bringing in contemporary composers and matching them with perhaps composers who might have recently died or whatever, and making a really sensible narrative out of a program. And they don't do anything fancy, you know, they don't kind of give it a theme or anything like that, that it's all matched simply in a musical way. And it's incredibly effective. Anna, is it difficult to convince audiences to come to orchestral events if there is such a focus on the past? I mean, are we, are we shortchanging well, actually, them in a sense? I mean, <laughs> in a way, it's the opposite. It's a challenge to get the audience to accept those. But I, I think it's essential that as a performer, I think you've got a moral responsibility to liaise with composers and work with composers and collaborate. And, and that's the engine room of the art form going forward is what's happening now. Martin, how much innovation is there in composition in the 21st century? I think we're actually going back to our roots in a kind of a way. I mean, the big move of the last 20 years or so is that people are starting to write tonally again with yeah. tunes. Uh, they're writing music that moves the emotions rather than stimulates the intellect. The big example of that, you know, the most obvious and, and most high-profile example of that over the last 30 or 40 years has been Goretzky's Third Symphony. And the amazing thing was this work by a formerly avant-garde composer ended up keeping Madonna and Michael Jackson's latest albums off the top of the pop charts in 19, I think it was 1991. And funnily enough, that was around the turn for most composers as well, many, many contemporary composers who then started writing in a much more accessible, communicative style. 
Eddie Ayers, when we talk about classical music, we often talk about distinct periods. So, you know, the Baroque period or the Romantic period. Does the 21st century, the second decade of the 21st century, is it possible to acknowledge or uh, determine a distinctive sound that's with us today? I think the distinctive sound is that there is no distinctive sound. I think that that's going to be the defining thing of the uh, 21st century. Martin Bosikon? Um, I think the distinctive sound is probably the one that's connected most at the moment is holy minimalism. It's mainly an Eastern European phenomenon, but it's it's this slow-moving kind of spiritual music, almost New Age music, but adapted to classical forms. Well, that's all we have time for, unfortunately. Let's go out with some holy minimalism. And Martin, you've actually chosen a piece for us, haven't this you? Just the, tell us about that. This is the Goretzky Third Symphony, the work that sold millions, literally, in the early 1990s. All right, great. Well, let's let's have a listen to that. And my thanks to Martin Buzzacott, to Anna Goldsworthy and to Eddie Ayres. Thanks also to co-producer Karen Savanovitz and sound engineer Dave White. This is Future Tense. I'm Anthony Fennell. Cheers. <laughs>